Good morning. So thankful you're with us today. It's my joy to introduce a young family that wants this to be their church home. Ryan and Katie Madgett and their two little ones, Ellen and John. Y'all mind standing where you are giving us a wave? We've got their picture on the screen as well. I'll tell you a little bit about them. Ryan grew up in Florida. Katie told me that her family moved around a good bit and then uh, finally to Florida. And she and Ryan uh, grew up going to the same church camp. So they've known each other for quite a while. Ryan went to Lipscomb University. Uh, he's got a, a new job as director of risk management for a rehab treatment facility. Uh, Katie went to Harding and then UT Law School. And as she explained it, she does the fun kind of law. Uh, I'll let you talk to her about what that is. I think she says intellectual property. Uh, Ella just turned six. She's in kindergarten and John will be one in March. Uh, so introduce yourself to them. They've been worshiping with, with us for about a year. So some of you know them already, know them well, but for some it may be a first. So uh, get to know them. Uh, last week, John Law brought uh, a very needed and important message. If you were not here, I hope you'll go back online and, and listen to that because you need to know a lot of details shared about what's coming next for our church uh, we also shared last week, again, announced about our trip to India, uh, the mission team of four this church is sending. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your encouraging words, your, your ongoing prayers. I need to say a word of thanks to Steve Kofer. Uh, he's our elder over missions and Chris Carroll, our deacon over missions. The two of them have been working hand in hand, um, leading our team, helping prepare. We've been meeting for about six months, I think, uh, preparing all the many, many details and uh, so grateful for these two. Uh, just continue to pray for that. <clears throat> two messages this week and next week I want you to know about. The aim of these two messages are to help us all share the same passion for the church that Jesus has. In the eyes of the world, the church is weak and ineffective and out of touch and even the enemy of progress, and the list goes on and on. But in the eyes of Christ, the church is uniquely precious, supremely valuable, and infinitely glorious. I put on the screen, there is a desperate need for a compelling biblical view of the church. There is a desperate need for a biblical view of the church. If I were to ask you, what is the church? Most of us tend to think about and to answer that question based on our own experience, on how we grew up or our introduction, if it was big or small or whatever it would be defined as. And that's what we think of when we think of church. Or we may be familiar with scripture, but we might misunderstand or not fully comprehend some of those scriptures and what they teach about the church. I'll give you an example. Have you ever said or even heard it said when Christians see each other in the aisle at a store or maybe out and about town or in the bleachers at a game, hey, there's two or three of us together. We're having church. Isn't that what Jesus said? Where two or three gather in my name, there I'm with you always. Well, he did say that. But that's not what that verse means. Because if you know the context there, he's talking about two Christians who are not getting along. And when they forgive and reconcile, he says, there I am with them in their midst. That's what he's talking about. So when you sit with your friends in an event, that's not church. I go one step more. If you go to a Christian school, 
that's not church. Wonderful things, but that's not church, at least the way the Bible talks about it. There's a desperate need for a compelling biblical view of the church. How many Christians have never seen the church the way Jesus sees the church? How many who call themselves Christians have never read the scriptures or maybe forgotten what the scriptures say, the ones that we're going to study these next two weeks? I was listening to Colin Smith share some statistics a couple of weeks ago, and I was convicted. I thought, we need, we need to have the right view of the church. Let me share some statistics he shared. He said 76% of Americans claim to be Christians, a very broad sense of that word. And so then he took the math, you know, with the U.S. population of just over 300 million, that means about 225 million Americans say they are Christian. But of that number, only 52 million will gather with other believers that week to worship. That means 173 million are not gathering with others. What does that tell us? What does that mean? Now, if we could talk with them, I'm sure we'd hear quite a few explanations or or reasons and different stories. Some might say, well, they have only a nominal connection with Christianity. They, They maybe grew up going to church and they say they believe in Jesus, but they've never experienced the power of Jesus working in their life. Or others would say they've served and believed, but they've been burned. They have seen firsthand the sin in the church or a scandal, and they decide they never want to go to church again. And Colin Smith explained about there's three stumbling blocks that is very evident in the, that plagues the church, same ones that plague the world. He mentions what they are, money, sex, and power. And often if you talk to some of those people who have given up on church because they've been burned, that may very well be a part of their experience as well. Others were part of a church and simply got nothing out of it. There's no spiritual substance or nothing that related to life. Maybe it was entertainment, but they can get better entertainment elsewhere. So why get it at church? Others may have drifted. They've engaged in other worthwhile, meaningful activities. And maybe they just never felt, find a, felt a church that felt like home. The truth is, it is not difficult to find reasons to abandon the church. Part of that is because we live in a highly individualistic culture. You know this. Some say we live in, of all cultures that ever existed, we live in the most individualistic. It's kind of who we are. It's in our American DNA. Our natural pragmatism asks, what's the most effective way of getting things done? And the local congregation does not look like the way to change the church. So we wonder, how do we think about that? Some even claim the church is damaging to our spiritual health. It's like a whole movement. Have you heard about this, about deconstructing your faith, giving up on church, giving up on God? They say church is toxic to spiritual life. If you really want to follow Jesus, you've got to do it your own way. Now, that may be a new concept to some or maybe a new name, but I was doing some research. You can follow that document all the way back in the 1800s in our country. The message of giving up on the church. 
So I say it again, Christians in America today desperately need a compelling biblical view of the church. We all do. We need to see Jesus. We need to see church as Jesus sees her and discover why he has a passion for the church. So the question, do you have a compelling biblical view of the church? That's going to be our purpose of our message today and next Sunday. And my prayer is when we finish this next week, you're going to be reminded of how beautiful the church is, how wonderful the church is in Jesus' eyes, and begin to see it in the very same way. Now, the Bible's teaching about the church is, is not difficult to grasp. Now, there are times where it's called a mystery, but the idea that it was a mystery for a while, but now it's not. It's been made known. God wants us to have the right view of the church. And so he teaches us through pictures and analogies. But first, I want to kind of acknowledge and even point out that there is no shortage of false views of the church. And no doubt they've come into my mind and yours as well, and we can't help but see it in the same way. And we've got to eliminate those false views before we can have truly a biblical view of the church. Tom Nelson, in his book, Ecclesia, identified four distorted messages. When I was reading this, I've heard this before, you probably have too, but I've put these on the screen if you want to take some notes here. Some see the church, false view here, as a gas station. For these people, the church is where you go and you fill up your spiritual gas tank. You get a good sermon, you sing some rousing songs, and, and it just kind of keeps you going. You get pumped up for the week. Or number two, some see the church as a movie theater. You go to a church as a place of entertainment. It's an hour of escape. It's a place where comfortable seats and there's plenty of feel-good moments. And so when you leave, you, you feel better for having been there. You, you escape the world and, and you come out smiling and thankful that you were there. Some see the church as a drugstore. It's a place where you can fill your prescription to deal with your pain. You need help. And so you see the church is therapeutic. Some see the church as a big box retailer. In that sense, it's a place that offers the best products and the best services. It's a clean and safe environment for your family. And so for many people, the church is a producer of programs, especially for your teens and your children. Now, you won't find any of those pictures described in the Bible. Not, not one. All of them are distortion, but they have one thing in common. You probably noticed this. They're all about me. They're self-centered. It's all about serve me. What about me? It's pure consumerism. Fill me up. Entertain me. Take away my pain. Provide something for me and my family. And it isn't sur surprising then that this is the pervasive view of America about what the church is. And those who think of the church in these ways are never content. They're never content. And even more, they're missing out because they're not seeing the church as Jesus sees the church. So may God help all of us remove these self-centered, distorted ways of thinking about the church and replace them with images that, that Jesus used, that he described, that the word tells us what he said about it. Did you know that our Lord only used the word church twice as recorded in the Gospels? 
So let me ask the question, what did Jesus mean when he spoke about the church? I mean, if it's his church, we ought to say, well, what did he say about it? What was his perspective? What was his viewpoint? Well, let's look at this. There's two teachings. The first, in a, in a way of explaining it, is the church universal. Like the big picture. Matthew 16, 18, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You remember the setting here. Peter had just made the confession, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And upon that confession, Jesus says, I will build my church. So the church Jesus is building has to refer to, as one author called it, all believers in every age, at all time, all over, every place. Because there's only one. I will build my church. It's singular. He says it's here. All believers, every age, in every place. One church, and I will build it. When Jesus speaks of the church, he's speaking of the church universal, entire body. Here's a point I want you to get. God knows who these believers are. And we need to know this, because any, any local church is going to be a mixture of those who belong to Jesus and those who do not. We need to know this. So don't be surprised by that. And, and in fact, don't be discouraged by that, but, but be aware of it. Be ready for it. Look on the screen at 2 Timothy 2.19. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And... Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. See, this mix of people that we're talking about here provides so many opportunities for disappointments in the church. But we've got to clarify here. We're not joined to Christ by belonging to the church. We belong to Jesus, and he adds us to the church. In the verses before this, Paul calls out two men who were part of that congregation there upsetting other Christians he calls them by name, Hymenius and Philetus. He said they abandoned the truth. And, and the way he described it, their teaching was spreading like gangrene. That's a harsh word, isn't it? In the church. So be warned, the Lord knows those who are his. He knows the genuine follower from, from the pretender or the hypocrite or the power hungry. He knows the weed from the chaff. Nobody fools him. No one deceives, deceives him. Look at that last line in verse 19 again. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Think about that. If a person continues in willful sin and wickedness, he is not of Christ. He says it point blank. And think about how many people who claim to be Christians, how many churches who claim to be a church, are missing that one. You can't continue in sin and believe you belong to Christ. Now, another way he used the word is talking about the local congregation. That's the second time. Here's Matthew chapter 18, the, verse, the passage we referenced earlier, beginning of verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take, it, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. This is the context. 
And then he says in verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. So this is the second time Jesus uses that word church. But here he's talking about where two people are not getting along. So he can't say tell it to the church, meaning everybody everywhere, because it's impossible to do that. He's clearly speaking about the local congregation of believers. Alan Stibbs, in his book, Such a Great Salvation, made an excellent point. He says, when you look into the sky at night, he said, and there's a thin crescent. He said, nobody says that. and goes, well, there's part of the moon. Nobody says that. We'll just say, it's a crescent moon, or there's the moon. Look how small it is. But we don't say there's part of the moon. He writes this, for the part that is visible is genuine moon. And what is more, it's actually, though invisible, to us invisibly, united with all the rest of the moon. Similarly, a local Christian congregation is genuine church become visible. It is body of Christ and invisibly one in him with the whole of his body. So our Lord used the word church in two ways. First is, is like all believers at all time and every place. And then second, just the local congregation. Now, we could talk about just those two teachings for weeks and weeks to come. But for the sake of time, I want us to keep moving. Because the Bible also shares many other passages that help us to have the correct view of the church. And we're going to look at three of those in this study. One this week and and, uh, two next week. The Bible uses the terms body and building and bride. Now it's worth noting, keep in mind, every analogy of the church points us to Christ. I think I put this on the screen, a quote by D.A. Carson in his book, The Church in the Bible and the World. He said, if the church is the bride, Christ is the bridegroom. If the church is a flock, Christ is the shepherd. If the church is a temple, Christ is the builder, the foundation, and the cornerstone. So this morning, let's consider what the Bible says about the church as the body of Christ. Now, I think we've grasped this. You've heard teaching on this. But did you know that this idea of the church being the body of Christ, there's actually two components to that. Understand the way there's two ways that that analogy works. And it's important for us to understand both because they're both important. Usually what comes to mind, at least for me, and maybe you as well, is 1 Corinthians 12. That's what I think of as the the body having many parts. And we understand that the whole body, including the head, works together. 1 Corinthians 12, great chapter. If it's been a while, go and read that chapter and help you to understand that. Paul explains there about the hand and the eyes and the feet and the ears. And they all play a part. They're all important. They all need each other. What this teaches is is the biblical concept, and you've heard the phrase, the priesthood of all believers. This is what is taught in 1 Corinthians 12. Think about when you pick up a pen. When you need to write something, the idea to pick up a pen comes from the mind first. And it alerts the body that we need to pick up a pen. So first things first, the eyes locate the pen, and second, the arm extends, and then the hand grasps, and then maybe the other hand with the eyes help grasp the paper, and then you're ready to write. It's all working at the direction of the head. But every part of the body has a part. Let's think about the analogy of the body and the head. 
The whole body is directed by the head. The head acts through the body. And that's where Ephesians 1 shares the second way this is used. That we have a different focus here. The church is the body, but make no mistake, Jesus is the head. So the head is acting through the body, and the body itself derives life and purpose, energy, everything, through from the head. So by describing himself as the head and the church as the body, I want you to get this. Jesus chooses to operate through the church. Do you think about this? Write down Ephesians 1. I think it's on your outline already. But go back and, and read the teaching here. Now, Jesus can work beyond the church. We know that. And there's times in Scripture that show that. When Saul of Tarsus was converted, there was not a Christian there. There's not a local church there. Jesus appeared to him directly. We know that. But even then, do you remember? He told him, you go into town and you'll be told what to do. Jesus told Ananias about Saul of Tarsus. And so there he was baptized and he stayed, the Bible tells us, with the disciples there in Damascus for several days. But that's an anomaly that he would work in that way. He doesn't normally do that. Jesus chooses to operate through the church, which is his body. For time's sake, I just want to highlight a couple of points in Ephesians. And again, I want to encourage you to go back and, and read this this week. We're going to study this this week and then next week. And then next week, we've got our small group Bible studies, and we'll get to talk more about that in, in those. But I want you to uh, look, I'm going to call a few verses in Ephesians 18, they're on the screen as well, where Paul is praying this heartfelt prayer for the church, that their eyes, that they would see this whole idea of how do you view the church. And, and look what he says here, beginning in verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. He talks about how important it is for us to see, understand correctly. Verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? Did you get that? His power toward us who believe. Is that how we view the church? Like Jesus is working his power through us. And then verse 22 and 23, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. And then here's that phrase, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Paul is praying that our eyes of our heart would be open, that we could see, we could understand. What? His immeasurable power. Unlike anything else in this world, and get this, the immeasurable greatness of his, of his power toward us who believe. Do you believe that? When you think of the church, the way Jesus works, that he's working his power through the church. So the analogy of the head working through his body tells us this is how Jesus works. This is how he operates. This is his choice. Jesus chooses to do his work in the world through these local congregations so that, according to verse 23, the body of Christ, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So a few questions. Since Christ is committed to work through the church, why shouldn't we do the same? 
Since Christ is building the church, isn't that what we should be doing? Since Christ loved the church, shouldn't we be loving the church too? Why wouldn't you want to be a part? Why wouldn't you want to be doing what Jesus is doing? Now, I say that because there may be a part of us thinks, well, you know, sometimes I like to do my own thing. Well, maybe so, but is that what Christ wants you to be doing? What does Christ want? What is, how does Christ operate? You say, well, I don't want to get tied up with the church. But what if Christ wants you to be a part of the church? Have you ever asked yourself why? Why does our glorious head attach himself to such an imperfect church? To a mixed bag of people? Why does he do that? Isn't it amazing that Jesus would choose to operate that way? Let's keep reading. In chapter 2, Paul shares more about what Paul, God wants us to grasp. Verse 7 here, he says, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So you see this working continuing to be explained. Then in chapter 3, he says at point blank how Jesus works through the church. Verse 10, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. Through the church. That's his plan. That's how he works. And then verse 20 and 21, you're probably familiar with this prayer. I can quote it. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church, and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Christ displays his glory through the gathering of his people. That's what it's saying here. Isn't that something? So let me ask you, why would you not want to be a part of the body of Christ? Serve in the body of Christ. Give to the body of Christ. Live and die for the body of Christ. There's no greater privilege for a believer in this world. I think when you truly grasp this, when, when, when the eyes of our hearts are enlightened, that, that Paul is praying for, when we get that, we're going to see the church in a whole new light. The gas station, the movie theater, the drugstore, the big box retail, retailer, they're a means to an end. You go get your fuel. You go get your item. You go watch the movie. But the church is not a means to an end. It is God's body on earth. It's the way he works. Now, if you've ever been bothered or discouraged by, I don't know how to say this, but I'm going to say the messiness or the chaos of church and wanted to, to move to another or, or just give up altogether, I want you to come back next week because we're going to talk about that and what that means and how we should respond to that. But I want to close with some application. What can we learn from this analogy of the body? that the church is the body of Christ. Number one, and it starts here, Christ is the head of the church. Christ is the head of the church. We can never forget that. We belong to Christ. We didn't decide to make him head. He's the head, and he decided that we can be a part of his body. Christ has gathered us together. We are his people. We serve we operate, we work at the direction of the head. Our calling is to be responsive to his leading. Number two, every member of the body must be connected to the head. 
John Stott, in his book, The Living Church, he said this, there's a grotesque anomaly of an unchurched Christian. See, we have to be careful not to carry any analogy too far. The Bible tells us we are saved by grace through faith in Christ. The thief on the cross was saved. It was never a part of a local congregation, but that's an anomaly. Have you committed yourself to a local church? If not, why not? Why are you staying undetached, uncommitted? Why would you think that doing that would be something that Jesus would want of you? Especially when you read these passages. If you're a Christian disconnected from the body and you've been going too long, my prayer is you're going to read these scriptures and let God lead you to an understanding of how he wants to work through his body to carry out his good news. Number three, every member of the body must be responsive to the head. In Mark's gospel, there's a story of a man with a shriveled hand. The hand was connected to the body, but it was of no use. It, it would not operate at all. So there was a breakdown in, in the hand being able to work, even though the head wanted it to work. Jesus said to the man, stretch out your hand. I've always wondered about that. Was that in, it, in itself impossible for the man to do? That Mark 3, 5 simply says, he stretched it out and the hand was restored. So if you're ever tempted to think, it's just me with all my problems, all my warts, all my issues. There's nothing I can give. There's no way God can work through me. I have nothing to offer. Remember, when you're connected to the head, you've got the power of God working through you. It's not about you at all. It's never about you. It's about God working through you. If this world is to experience the love of Christ, how is Jesus going to make that happen? Now, yes, he could do it directly like he did to Saul of Tarsus on the road. But what we read in Scripture, he does it through his people. That's why sometimes you will hear the comment, we are his hands, we are his feet. And I've got to share number four, because you need to hear this. You need to know this. You need to remember this. Every member of the body will suffer with the head. Think about the body of our Lord Jesus. What happened to his body? The same body that fulfilled all obedience was pierced and broken. The same body was offered on the cross. The world inflicted a horrible, horrible pain on the body of Jesus. And for the last 2,000 years, the world has continued that hate for his body, the church. It just continues. It always has, always will. So don't expect the world to love you. Don't expect those who do not belong to Jesus to think kindly of you or think positively of you at all. Remember Jesus' words, John 15, 18, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you devote your life to serving Christ, you will have scars. You will have wounds. So don't think of that as being an issue or a problem. Maybe it's a mark that you're doing the right thing. 
2 Corinthians 4, 7 and 10, Paul talks very bluntly about this. Do you remember this verse? But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Listen to what he says, verse 8. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. The body, of which Christ is the head, is a despised body. A suffering body in this world. Scars suffered in the body are evidence that were joined to the head. The head that wore the thorn of crowns. The body whose hands and feet were pierced. But to identify with Christ, to be connected to the head, to be a part of his body, means you share the power of his resurrection. Remember Paul saying that? And the fellowship of his sufferings is part of it. When you wear the name of Christ. Joseph Parker spoke about how Thomas came to faith after the resurrection. Unless I see the prints of the nails of his hands, I will not believe he says, what Thomas said of Christ, the world is saying to the church, unless I see in your hands the prints of the nails, I will not believe. The physical body of Christ was broken for the life of the world. But how do we as God's people then try to live in safe limits? Think about it as a life of comfort and convenience. James Phillips said this, Christ still wants to say to men, quote, this is my body broken for you, unquote. And for this to have any credence, the church, which is his body, must become broken bread and poured out wine for the life of the world. Are you ready for that? Because that's what it means to be a part of his body. And then number five, every member of the body will be glorified with the head. One day, one day, the scarred body of the church that so often feels feeble and weak and inept, the body that's so despised and hated and persecuted by the world will be taken up into the presence of God. And that scarred body of believers will become like his glorious body. And that head that once wore the, thro uh, thor uh, thro the crown of thorns is now crowned with glory. And that precious body will be glorified. Don't you want to be part of that body? Do you belong to Jesus? Jesus came so that you could have salvation in his name. So that he could wash you clean, give you the gift of the Holy Spirit, not for you to live a life of independence and do your own thing until he comes back, but that you can be a part of his body, connected to the head and the power of God working through you. 
Our song of invitation is to encourage you to say yes. If we can pray for you, song is for you as well. Or if you need prayer that's private, we've got a prayer room. One of our shepherds will be in there after we dismiss, and you can go and talk with them. Oh, oh, what a privilege, the ultimate privilege of wearing the name of Jesus, of being a part of his body, to have a compelling biblical view of the church. Let's stand and sing together. Oh,